God bless you, Brother Jeremy. Good morning. <clears throat> Greetings in the name of Jesus. It's definitely different now coming not having our first hour, I think Glenn brought this up, not having our first hour to have songs and and to be prepared to preach. You just step right into it. <laughs> but we'll just rely on the Lord this morning. <clears throat> For some time now we've been talking uh, as I've been it's been on my heart to go over why we do what we do. We've talked about why we wear head coverings, why we are non resistance, uh, why we dress modestly. Um, and we've looked at some of the history behind that. And this morning I want to do that again. Uh, and I, the title of what I want to speak on is a Christian's perspective on politics. Now I know that's coming up soon. The elections are coming. Everybody knows. And, um, right now it's Trump versus Biden. And I'm sure if everybody were to go to their heart right now, they might even think who they hope would make it in the office. So a question might be, would Jesus be a Republican or would he be a Democrat? Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was the end of my sermon. I'm going to go sit down now. <laughs> if Jesus lived in the 21st century of America here, what would you think about our or what would he think about our current political concerns? What do you th- what would you think about gun control? What do you think about immigration? What do you think about government regulations, taxes, police reform? You've been seeing a lot of that lately. Would he recycle? (laughs) Here's a scary question. Would Jesus have been more likely to vote for Trump or for Biden? Nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. What do we fear when you think about it in your heart? You think about maybe somebody getting elected. What what comes to your heart that we would fear when it comes to politics? Well, we fear loss. We fear we might lose our rights. We fear we might lose the ability to carry guns. We fear we might lose the ability to come here and worship. We fear we might have more regulations put on us and it will be hard to run our businesses. Like I said, nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. Satan loves division. Therefore, the world, his children, love division. And they use fear to create further division. If you're not, if you're not aware of it, just look at some of the ads. They come online. They talk about the other opponent, how terrible it is. And they put you into the state of fear. And then they come right after and say, so send us $25. Send us, right? <clears throat> And the world loves to have predefined boxes. That way we can place people in the box and they can place you in the box. If you think abortion is wrong, then the box you get placed in is you should be hard on immigration. You should be soft on gun control. You should dismiss global warming as a myth. On the other hand, if you have compassion towards the immigrants, then you should also accept gay and transgender agendas and reforms. But as Christians, our belief should not be bundled and prepackaged into two little neat colored boxes, red and blue. What if our political beliefs reflected the heart of Christ, the heart of Jesus, and not the popular ideologies of society? So are you willing this morning to evaluate your politics Through the filter of our faith. Rather than create a faith that supports your politics. And that's what so many today do. They create a faith that supports their politics rather than viewing their politics through the lens of their faith. Are you willing to put your faith ahead of your political filter. It's very difficult to do. And most Christians think they've already done this. 
And they'll say things like, why do they think like that? Are we willing to follow Jesus when it creates a space between you and the party or the political candidate? Are you willing to stand with Jesus on the matter and say, I don't agree with that side, even if it's the candidate or party that maybe you think would be best? Everyone is convinced that Jesus would be on their side. Just look at the current politics. Just the other day, uh, we had Bernie Sanders, we had um, Elizabeth Warren, and we had, how do you say his last name? Pete Buttigieg or something like this. And they were quoting scriptures. They were quoting passages from Psalms. They were quoting things from the one we call Jesus. And they're convinced that if Jesus was here, he would agree with them. And then the others, the other day, President Trump was out with a Bible taking pictures after he just got done spraying a bunch of protesters to make the way to get to the place to take pictures and a photo op with a Bible. And somehow everyone is convinced that Jesus would be on their side. And I'm sure if you check your own heart, you might be the same. You might be convinced that Jesus is on your side. I saw this saying, he is so red, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he is so blue It's amazing how often he agrees with you. But, you know, it's if we really take a hard look at it, it's very easy and it's completely natural. To be divided. To assume that Jesus agrees with us and to divide from others. It's the natural thing to do. The spiritual thing is to push through. And and try to bear with each other. And Jesus saw this coming. If you turn to John 17. I want to look at a prayer that Jesus had. To set the stage, Jesus has walked three and a half years with his disciples. He has taught them. He has been between the religious system And the political system of the Romans, he has tried to model to his disciples love and he has tried to model the disciples what his kingdom was about. And here he is now at the Last Supper. He just finished eating with them. He just finished washing their feet and he's going to pray with them. And as he prays, he has a prayer request. Now, can you imagine if this Wednesday night we had a prayer meeting and Jesus happened to be here and he had a prayer request? We'd all turn. What does Jesus want? Right. What is Jesus prayer request? You know, we come together, we pray, we ask, we ask God a lot of different things. Uh, You know, Lord, protect us. Lord, provide for us all these different things. But what did Jesus want? So let's look at that in John 17. You can see in verse one. Sorry, my King James Bible went away, so I have a different Bible here, but I'll just read it. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can glorify or so he can give glory back to you. So here he is at the last hour. He's he's praying with his disciples and he says, Lord, we're here. We're at the last hour. He says, now, Lord, light me up. Bring glory to me that they can see that I was sent by you so I can bring glory back to you. Now, let's jump down to verse 11. Now I am departing from the world and they are staying in the world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name. Let's stop there for a second. So he prays, Lord, I'm coming to you. These they're going to stay back. These disciples I've been training, they're going to stay back behind. They're not going to come with me. But Lord, protect them. What does he want to be protected? What does Jesus in his last prayer here to the father with his disciples, what does he want God to protect them from? He says, protect them. By the power of your name, that they may will be united just as we are. Look at the heart of Jesus as he's. Getting ready to die. He wants 
these disciples to be united. He wants them to be one. He wants them to love each other. He had just gotten done saying this in, in the, in the, just hours before. He said, I'm giving you a new commandment that you would love one another. And then he puts a qualifier on it. Not just love one another. That was in the Old Testament. But love one another as I have loved you. He says, I've modeled what love is. In this new covenant, love is like I've shown you. And you need to walk in that same way. And so he says, unify them. Now jump down to uh, verse 20. So he says, protect them that they may be unified as one. Verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me. He's saying all. That's Jew. That's Gentile. That's rich. He's praying for the poor and the rich, the black, the white, the farmers, the city slickers, the long bearded ones, the short bearded ones and the no bearded ones. He's praying for the uneducated and the educated. He's praying for the ones that maybe sympathize with the Republican Party and ones that sympathize with the Democrat Party. He's praying for the white and blue shirts and the ones that wear tunics. He says this. I'm praying for all. <clears throat> that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world, look at what the purpose of this is, so that the world will believe you sent me. The purpose of this unification is so that the world, not us, but the ones driving by right now, rolling their eyes at us, that they would believe that Jesus was sent by God and that they would believe in him. So his last prayer was that we would be unified. And, and, and notice it goes on. It says, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in them. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and you love them as much as you love me. So the heart of the Savior this morning is for us to be unified. And the heart of the devil is for us to be divided. And he will use anything, including politics. Politics, if there's anything that defines politics, it's division. Uh, I saw an interesting chart to see over the years how much we are polarizing, polarizing, polarizing. And to where now the gap is getting bigger and bigger. And there's coming a day, I, I think I've heard Brother Glenn talk about it, that there may be a civil war. I mean, what we just saw with these riots sparked from one side to the other. How quick that took place. And it's because of the radical polarization that's going on in our country. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will give in and we will be sucked right into this division, this party mentality, this uh, schools of thought, instead of being followers of Christ and his kingdom. But it sounds impossible to think about Jesus praying this prayer. Lord, I'm praying not only for these disciples here, but for all disciples, whoever believe, which includes you and me today. It sounds almost impossible. It sounds like a, a dream. But for Jesus, it was mission critical. It wasn't an add on. It wasn't. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if they could be one? This is what Jesus heart was. And therefore, it's imperative it means that we need to be intentional about it. It does not come naturally. What comes naturally is to be divisive and to be, have division. But if you stop and think about it, why does it come naturally that way? It's because we only know what we know, right? We only know what we know. Example, Dennis Hertzler sits here. He was a different person when he went to, before he went to Iraq and now that he went to Iraq. He saw things, things that changed his attitudes towards this world. We know what we know because that's all we know. It's all we've been raised in. It's, it's, you know, we live out in the country, most of us. 
We've all lived in the same kind of environment most of our lives. This is what we were raised with. So we know what we know. We're a product of the things we've been around. And we have to admit that we weren't raised in a vacuum. We're, we have been shaped by the things that we've been around in our culture. We've been shaped by the things we read, we listen to. And the experiences that we've had, the way we were raised. And we tend to want to run to our little corner. But Jesus here was praying that there's this kingdom that will surpass all kingdoms. You know, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Right now, we think American is an amazing nation. But, you know, one time in the past, Rome was an amazing nation. And where are they today? This kingdom could be gone like that. Parties come and parties go. We all think of Republican Democrats. Well, where are the Whigs and the Federalists? Anybody in here been tracking them lately? They've shut down their lights. They're not even around anymore. But Jesus came to set up a kingdom that's everlasting, that will span through all these kingdoms and won't be pulled down to the necessarily parties of these kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom crosses national lines, language barriers, ethnic groups, cultures. And he prays all of these. Imagine what he's praying. That the American Christians with the Russian Christians, with the Chinese Christians, with the Mexican Christians will all be one with the Iraqi Christians. That they will be unified in complete unity. And he says the reason is so the world will know and take notice, even though there might be disagreements. I'm not saying that we all need to today just stop disagreeing with each other. Like, obviously, we're going to have different thoughts, different ways of things. But the idea is we need to keep a focus on unity. We need to take a focus on bearing with each other, carrying each other's burdens. And it's not just this church. The church is so much wider. The church is so much bigger than this little church in Halsey. Oh, yeah, I bear with my brothers in Halsey, Oregon. That's pretty small. (laughs) The church is so much bigger. Politics on the other side says, let's take sides. I read this quote. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. The kingdom of God will always conflict with the kingdoms of men. So it's absolutely foolish for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to be divided by candidates and parties. When sometimes, if we actually think and are honest about it, sometimes one party may in one area represent Christ more than another. I remember growing up. Uh, I was very heavily Republican and the concept of people helping other people and helping the homeless and 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 having compassion on just seems so liberal. It was the Jesus that was like, (laughs) and so we would kind of mock it. You know, we thought it was we thought it was uh, just not the right thing. But when we really analyze the scripture and we look, who was Jesus? I mean, the guy said, woe is the rich. He says, Mary prayed, he has, he has fed the poor and sent the, the rich away empty. I mean, this guy preached a message about leveraging wealth to help the needy. Which sometimes sounds a little democratic. <clears throat> and those are the verses that Democrats might go after. On the other hand, the Republicans may go after the verses about marriage between one man and one woman. And and they may show how it's wrong to murder and, and, and abort babies. And we agree with that, too. But we have to realize, and this was a man named Miles Law. He, he uh, coined this phrase. It's where you stand depends on where you sit. What that means is. Where you stand, maybe where you take your stand on different things, depends on where you're sitting. In other words, you're a product of the things you've been around. You know, you think about it like this. 
It's easy for us to say about all this black violence going on. It's easy for us to say, why don't they just get it together? Like, why don't they just stop shooting each other, uh, stop taking drugs and be done with it all? It's easy to say that. But we've never been raised in an environment where every day we walk out onto the street and there are bullets literally flying by us. There are drug cartels driving up and down the streets. Our mother has been with five guys. You know, there's drugs being sold all the time. We've never been in that environment to know what it's like for somebody to have been in that environment. And so we, 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 we take a position from where we're sitting, right? And we say something coarse and rough versus if you stopped and listened and thought, wow, this, this person, yeah, this is not easy. This is not going to be an easy thing to change in a generation. This is a product of many generations of the environment they've lived in and, and the things that they've gone after. How would Jesus respond to that? <clears throat> Culture context determines our perspective. In other words, you're shaped by where you've lived, where you were raised, where you were educated, what you have been told, what you have seen, and what you've experienced. But when we are like Christ and we try to understand it from a different angle, I'm not saying you need to agree with it, but understand it. Why do they think like that? It can help you with compassion. It can help you with mercy. For example... Our governor uh, has made some regulations and some different things. We can just take the coarse uh, attitude of she's a socialist and she's a this and she's a Democrat, right? Or we can take it from the concept that she's deceived and she's giving into these ideas and, um, and try to understand why she's thinking this through. Yes, she has some understandings that she wants to help the poor. And that's a really good thing to follow Jesus. But she's doing it from the wrong angle and try to at least understand why that side is coming from that way. I know my political views has changed from 10 years ago. And I know that they've changed even more from 20 years ago. Which means that in 10 years, young men, young ladies, you'll probably have different political views than you do at this very moment. So it'd be good for us to stay humble and to and to not be so sure of ourselves. <laughs> Amazing thing. My grandpa was a Democrat, a staunch Democrat. My 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 father was a staunch Republican. I, I, I texted him this morning. I said, why do you, you know, what was the what was the reason? He goes, well, we never agreed on politics. <laughs> well, he was a product of his environment. My grandpa grew up working for Ford. And, and in that day, I don't understand because I haven't researched it, but in that day, the Democrats stood up for the people that worked for big companies like that. And my grandpa got sold out somehow that the Democrats were for his good. And, and for the rest of his life, he just defended the Democrats. And the Democrats were so great, even though he, did, he, he professed to be a Christian and didn't agree with abortion. But he, and then my dad, on the other hand, he was exactly the opposite, staunch Republican. <clears throat> I read about this thing that we can do, and I, it reminded me of something I learned in Belize through some trials. It's called, it's a big word, it's called fundamental attribution error. Have you heard of it? Dennis, I thought for sure you'd say, yeah, I've heard of it. <laughs> fundamental attribution, look it up on Wikipedia. This is what it means. It's the tendency for people to underemphasize situation, situational, uh, Situational explanations for an individual's observed behavior while overemphasizing disposition and personality-based explanations for their behavior. That's a little hard to grasp. But I'll say it like this. It's a simple example. This is actually right off Wikipedia. Here's a simple example of it. Consider a situation. Alice, a driver, is cut off in traffic by Bob. Alice attributes Bob's behavior to his fundamental personality. He thinks only of himself. He is selfish. He is a jerk. He is an unskilled driver. She does not think it's situational, right? She doesn't think, oh, he might be late to work. He might be like running to the hospital. She thinks he's a jerk. He's irresponsible. She doesn't think situational like he might, he's going to miss his flight. His wife is giving birth. His daughter is convulsing at school. Alice might well make the opposite mistake. Now, here's what's funny. 
We do this for others, but when it's for ourselves, what do we do? The opposite makes a excuse her safe by saying she was influenced by situational causes. So you're late to work and you're like, well, I was, you know, I'm a very organized person. I'm not lazy. I'm totally organized. I just had this couple things come up. But you see your employee, the other guy like to work. Yeah, that guy is so lazy, irresponsible. You see how we do that? It's called, well, what did they call it? Fundamental attribution error. We, we, we purposely assume on other people that it's a character flaw on them. But as soon as it happens to us, we think, oh, it's situational. Like, I'm really a good character inside. But it was situations that made me not do it. And that is what politics will do. Has anybody ever noticed all the stuff flying back and forth? Lately, all the mudslinging. I got some quotes here if you want to hear them. Um, where were they? Wacko John Bolton. Uh, made of fake lies and stories. Said all good about me in print until the day I fired him. A disgruntled, boring fool who only wants to go to war. Never had a clue. Happily dumped. What a dope. Wow. This is what it's become. Uh... They're bringing in drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Is this Christian? Is this love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control? How can a dummy dope like Harry Hurt, who wrote a failed book about me, but doesn't know me or anything about me, be on TV discussing Trump? Lightweight Senator Rand Paul should focus on trying to get elected in Kentucky. Uh, I'll just jump through some of these spoiled brat. Uh, great. Now I can go after Horseface and her third rate lawyer. Horseface. I mean, we laugh, but think about this. Think about what we would put our name behind. This Christianity would put their name behind this. And it's happening it's called the righteous wing of Christianity, and a lot of them are backing it. And we somehow look the other way when this happens because he supports some good causes. And we get thrown into something where the world looks away and says, no, we don't want that. Crazy life, low life, a dog who had a face of a pig. That woman was fat and ugly face. Huh? You get it? Okay, good. I'm trying to make my point. <laughs> yeah, we don't want any children repeating this. Okay. Hmm. I lost my place. Okay, here we are. Fundamental attribution error. And how do we do this? We go, those Democrats, they're corrupt. They're all corrupt. And you know what the Democrats say? Those heartless Republicans. I've researched them. I've met them. They're all heartless. Is this the way Christianity should be? No. It shouldn't. And that's the problem with politics. Democrats are socialists. The Democrats say Republicans are all racist. They'll never admit it. But see, in Jesus' kingdom, followers of Jesus have their eye on Jesus, right? They have their eye on him and his kingdom. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And they don't fall for this. They don't fall for all of this division. They don't stand with one party or one person. They stand with Jesus. They'll point out the good in the man, but they'll also point out the evil. They won't be what the world will do. And this is politic mudslinging is, Underemphasize the good, maybe not even mention it, and overemphasize the bad. Is that bearing? Is that assuming others better than ourselves? It's not the way of Christ. <clears throat> Jesus never came and did that. Jesus was not to be a footnote on a political platform. He came to replace everything that was in place. He came to be above all of these kingdoms. And this is what the early church lost their lives about. They wouldn't, they wouldn't pledge their allegiance to good or bad kings until later. But in the early church, they were dying for this. 
Political rhetoric feeds divisions. Listen to this verse in Colossians 3. If you want to follow along, you can turn there, Colossians 3.11. And I'm going to read it out of the, what was this? I think it was like, I don't know, the good news translation. But I want you to think about it differently. Sometimes when we read from the King James, we think about it and we pass right over what it's trying to say. So listen to it from this viewpoint. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. This is Colossians 3.11. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. If you're a barbaric person or you're an uncivilized slave or free. You see what he's getting at? Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be holy people, he loves. You must clothe yourself with what? It doesn't. Look what the, 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 the tendencies here are or the, the um, what our attitudes are tender hearted. Would you say some of those things I just read were tender hearted? No. Tender hearted mercy. Was that merciful kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Now examine your own heart and look back when you've said things like those socialists or those, you know, that this person just get out of here, whatever it is. Are you matching up with what? should be happening in your life as one in the kingdom of God. Are you matching up with being a tender-hearted, merciful, kind, humble, gentle, and patient person, making allowance for each other's faults and forgiving one another who offends you? Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. See the same theme, unity, harmony, love, that overlook some of our differences and some of our even different thoughts on things. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Galatians chapter five, if you want to turn there. Verse I want to read it from the same translation here that makes you think about it just a little bit different. What human nature does. Remember, we talked about what comes naturally. What comes naturally is to divide. What comes naturally is to get into parties. Okay, what human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral, filthy and indecent actions. Okay, yeah. And we've seen that in worship and of idols and witchcraft. Okay. People become enemies. Listen to this. This is natural people. They become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry, and ambitious. Now watch this. They separate into parties and groups. I think it says seditions and things like that. Divisions in the King James. It's, you see, the work of the flesh is divisions. And it's not bearing with people. It's not being gentle. It's dividing. It's getting into small groups. And, you know, I, I uh, saw this thing about... Uh, science and they said uh, I don't I can't say it perfect but what they said was when you uh, when you add positive and negative you know in current and they keep each other in balance right but as soon as you take away the negative out do you remember the name of it Dennis no okay I thought you might as soon as you take the negative out it goes like this It goes out of control. And, you know, that's why in our country right now, we're becoming more and more politically divided. Everybody is becoming more and more in their little divisive groups. I'm over here and I'm only listening to CNN. I'm over here and I'm only listening to Fox News and I'm only hearing from them. And and pretty soon you become what you listen to. And pretty soon everything. Oh, yeah, it's all about them and it's all conspiracy. And they're over here and all these although they're all racist White supremacy, and it just divides and divides and divides. And what's happening is just what we're seeing. That's why we're told to bear with each other. One brother to another brother might have different of opinion on something, but we bear with each other on it here. One brother might think, oh, I think we should go this far. Another brother thinks, I don't think we should. But we bear because that's what Christ's prayer was for us. <clears throat> but in politics, the, the slogan, you probably heard this is, The end justifies the means. That was the concept when the church decided to start going to war. Well, 
You've got to kill some people to stop somebody evil. And so when the church now thinks it's all right to go and kill and, and no longer love their enemies because the end justifies the means. I need to get here and get rid of Hitler, for example. So we've got to kill a bunch of Germans to do it. But our, our goal is to kill Hitler. Okay, is that right? Is it right? Is that, and that's the, that is the viewpoint of politics. Politics says, I, need to, I, I have an idea of how this country would be better. I need to get elected. I will do whatever it takes. I will slam that guy. I will mudsling. I will say whatever it takes because my goal is to get this good thing here enacted for this country, what I view as good. And so that's what we do. The end justifies the means. But that's not the way of Christ. He, doesn't, he does not want us to take that mindset. <clears throat> I'm going to read you a little thing here. It's called the GOP Jesus. Everybody know what GOP is? The Republican Jesus. Now, I'm sure we could come up with a Democratic Jesus, too. But this is what happens in the world's mind when we side with politics. And you can go out there and see so many slams. They'll take a picture of a huge church building and they'll say, is this really what Jesus meant? And then they'll show a picture of somebody in Africa starving. And they'll say, so this is what, you, you know, you GOP Christians think is right. And they see the hypocrisy in it. <clears throat> Listen to this. This would be a GOP Jesus. Truly, I say unto you, this is like quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Truly, I say to you, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name might be letting in a murderer or a druggie. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And behold, now I'm all lazy and entitled. You shouldn't have done that. Do unto others as you suspect they might want to do unto you. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? A lot. One soul for the entire world. That's an amazing deal. If a man strikes you on the right cheek, Turn to him and shoot him. If you want to be perfect, go sell all the possessions you have and give your money to a solid mutual fund. By this, they will know you are my disciples that you say Merry Christmas. It is super duper easy for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The richer, the better, really. Love your neighbor as yourself, unless, of course, you are better than your neighbor. If a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he should just go ahead and do what he has got to do. The regular Jesus says this. You have a clever way of rejecting God's law in order to uphold your own teachings. And see, that's what we fall into. And the, and, and the world sees us as just hypocrites when we do this. They see you carry this Bible around that says all this stuff and, and some of us are even holding for those values better than you and yet, look what you're doing. That's why it's dangerous. It's dangerous for us to get into politics and to take sides. I have a little bit more time. I'm going to read an article here. <clears throat> I'm going to have to skip through it because it's too long. When a nation begins to industrialize and develop, they almost always secularize as well. Secularization is when a society turns from being primarily based on religious values to one that is primarily based on non-religious or secular values. According to a 2006 study, when a country has a one standard deviation increase in GDP cap per capita, church attendance decreased by 17%. The richer the nation, the less people that attend the church. I'm going to jump down a little bit. During the 60s, Christians came under attack in America by Countercultural movements like the hippies. These movements tended to have a strong anti-authority influence that rebelled against any authority, and especially the church. This was followed by a transformation in music styles. You guys probably remember all the music from the 70s. We've talked about that here in our youth group. The sexual revolution and feminism attacked the traditional family structure. Abortion was legalized. And nationwide, an urban crime skyrocketed. But then came the 90s. American culture began to change rapidly. By the end of the decade, ir 
religion in America had more than doubled to nearly 15%. The percentage of Americans who went to church regularly fell sharply as the culture started to secularize very rapidly. This trend didn't stop with the 90s. Continuing into the 21st century, the most current survey find that the Christians in America is declining faster than ever. So what changed? What caused America's rapid transformation? Why does my generation, Generation Z, have to be raised in a godless, wicked society while my parents and grandparents enjoyed a culture that respected the values they chose to uphold? Was this change in the American value system unavoidable and unstoppable? What is America's real problem? Um, I'll jump down a little bit. Basically, he's talking about how um, it was just a delay that was coming. Generally, people tend not to have a problem with a person, organization, or idea if they see, don't see any negative effects. Therefore, I suggest that the biggest reason America turned their backs on Christ values in the 90s was because American Christianity had changed. Christianity in America had become obnoxious and something many Christians as a negative force in our society. Sorry, many Americans saw as a negative force in our society. It was no longer something people wanted to associate with. <clears throat> but Americans view of the church changed. A new movement had formed that would eventually be called the Christian right. This weird mix of church and politics hadn't started in the 90s, but was but was a growing movement for much of the mid 20th century. In the 70s and 80s, groups like Focus on the Family, the Christian Voice, the Christian Broadcasting Network began to encourage Christians to get involved in politics. These groups claimed that America's was in dire danger of being taken over by the liberal agenda and Christians needed to stand up and support candidates that would uphold Christian values. Soon other churches and organizations joined in the effort to recruit right-wing voters. Politicians caught the trend and started advertising themselves as tools to stop the force of liberalism in America. Before long, the Republican Party adopted Christian agendas like anti-abortion and prayer in the schools. By the way, has that even changed? <laughs> well, look, at we, we sold out. And what have we gained? Prayer is still not in the schools and abortion is still happening, right? <clears throat> But throughout history, this mix became toxic. The American church was no longer a unifying force in culture. Did you notice the word unifying? What do we read? Jesus' prayer was that we would be unified. And so it says here, no longer was the American church a unifying force in the culture. On the contrary, it became a dividing factor for many people. Notice the thing the devil wants the most. <clears throat> for Americans, the church became the Republican church. When the 90s arrived, Americans were beginning to have a distaste for the, this politicized Christian agenda. Along with this, America's anti-God nemesis, the Soviet Union, Union, no longer existed, and Americans became more comfortable with non-religious people. Americans that supported moderate or left-leaning politics became demonized by the many people in the church for not supporting Republicans. Many people were left with a choice to accept the church and the Republican Party or reject both. Many chose to reject in 1990, only 10% of Americans that supported liberal politics considered themselves religiously unaffiliated. A decade later, it had more than doubled to 23%. You can see it's rising. Many people that didn't like the Republican agenda simply dropped the faith altogether. Understandably, many people could not reconcile the morally corrupt Republican candidate was supposed to be the one that supported morale. And we see that today. A quarter of the Americans, young people that left the church, say the reason they quit going to church was because they decreed, disagreed with their church's political stance. After reading many articles by secular news sites clearly connecting this rise in secularism to the Christian right, it got me thinking. In other words, the writer is saying, I read a lot of articles and the secular people are saying this is why this whole idea that the hypocrisy in the church. Maybe the anti-God liberalist trend in our country is our fault. Has the church caught itself in the middle of a political fight, but as a result is destroying the very thing that it's fighting to keep? Why is the church supporting the Republican Party? Are Republicans doing the church a service? 
In the mid-20th century, a young preacher became famous for hosting crusades across the country and helping thousands to Christianity. His name was Billy Graham. Graham made a lasting impact on Americans that continues to this day. One of his biographers said he was one of the most influential Christian leaders in the 20th century. But Graham was not a Republican. He distanced himself from the Christian right and was even a registered Democrat. He supported presidents on both parties and advocated church and state separation. Billy Graham died in 2018, and his son Franklin is now at the reins of the multi-million dollar organization his dad created. Franklin, though, could not be further from his dad's view on politics. He is known throughout the world for his forthright support for Donald Trump. He frequently tells his listeners to vote biblically in his Decision America campaigns, in which he implies that voting Republican is biblical. While on the West Coast, during a speaking tour, he said, let's go penetrate the blue wall, not for politics, but for Jesus. Clearly referring to the left-leaning states in that area of the country. So do Republicans support Christian values more than the Democrats? Are they really more biblical as Graham proposed? In the 1980s, the Christian right movement helped elect Ronald Reagan. Uh, I'm going to jump down a little bit lower. In, in 2016, the Republican Party nominated Donald Trump as their candidate for the 2016 presidential election. He would go on to win the general election against former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. It is publicly known that Trump cheated on his first wife and then married his mistress. He's also famous for being the host of a TV beauty pageant where all kinds of perverted things happen. And I read quotes that he talked about what happened in the back door scenes of those places. One of the contestants, a porn star, would eventually become his third wife. Is this really the man who's supposed to defend our Christian values? Especially since the person he was running against, talking of Hillary, was only married one time and didn't divorce even though her husband was unfaithful? I'm not suggesting that Democrats have more morale or morals. Far from it. Supporting Democrats would not come close to fixing our problem. I'm rather suggesting that elected Republicans are nowhere closer to living out what Jesus commanded his followers and therefore are not biblical, as Graham suggested. The American church is doing the kingdom of God a huge disservice by blindly supporting these morally corrupt candidates and even advocating that they are defenders of Christian values. The solution is not switching political parties. Rather, we need to divorce the church from politics altogether. Um, I don't have time to read all this, but if we just take a quick minute and say, what, what are some of the uh, things that got the Republicans stand for? The Republicans stand for big military, active foreign policies, going into other countries, taking over, killing people. Dennis went there. He saw Iraq. He saw the, the, uh, all of the mistreatment and all the, the, the way they feel about what happened. Is that of Christ? Is that a Christian value to go and conquer the world and send our military and, and uh, police all these countries and, and kill our enemies? Uh, recently, the Republican Party has advocated tightening borders, stricter immigration. Don't let the, the, the Spanish people through the borders. We don't want them in this country taking our jobs. Is that a Christian? Can we say that's a biblical thing? Can we say we can get behind that and like that's what Jesus would have us do in his kingdom? No. These are things of this worldly kingdom. <clears throat> the, the Democrats would come against the Republicans for climate change and, and would say that, we, you know, the Republican Party is about we shouldn't have regulations. We should be able to dump these chemicals. We should be able. And, and maybe there are abuses on both ways. But is this an issue that the church needs to take up and to be getting involved in and taking sides and saying, uh, I want to be able to put all this exhaust in the air and, you know. Maybe we need to read some of the articles. Maybe we need to understand before we take strong opinions. But I think you might see through this article. I'll read this. You may be thinking. Democrats are even more corrupt. Their morals are policies are even worse. This may be true, but does this mean we should support Republicans, even though if they are better than the alternative? Furthermore, I'm arguing against the claim that voting Republican is biblical. As far as I know, this claim has never been made by Democrats, but I'd agree that voting Democrat is equally unbiblical. The trends toward liberalism in America is very real. Godlessness is abounding and respect for Christianity is decreasing. 
We, the church, need to separate ourselves completely from the world system and be a pure light in the darkness. America's problem is not the Democrats or the liberals or even the Republican. It's the marriage that is taking place between the church and the politics. So I'll close. Kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go. Kings will come and kings will go. Parties will come. Parties will go. We don't have the Whigs or the Federalists anymore. But God's kingdom will last forever. We are commanded to obey our governor, our king, president, as we call him nowadays. We're commanded to even honor him, not to speak ill of him. But we should not align ourselves with them. We should not pledge our allegiance to them. We should not even become, what I've heard said before, a non-voting Republican. And if you check your heart, we can become that. We don't vote, but in our heart, it's like we're caught up in it all. And if we could vote, we would. Let's not be non-voting Republicans. Let's be citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's be like it says in 2 Timothy that says, Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Can you imagine? Just get this for a moment. The soldiers out on the field, right? And the battle front is in front of him and the soldiers over on the opposing army over there on the front. And they're all getting ready and they're listening for their command to go. And all of a sudden, one of the soldiers jumps up and says, hey, guys, hang on a second. I'm going to go get a Starbucks. Soldiers don't get caught up in the civilian affairs of life. That's absurd to think of such a thing. They go to boot camp to learn to put all of those things aside and to stay focused and not even think about a thought like that. And in the same way, are we focused on God and his kingdom? Or are we more focused on the civilian affairs of life? We don't know how to please our master when we're focused on the civilian affairs of life. Our our eyes should be single and focused on the true Everlasting King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his nation and his desires. Thank you for listening.